Good evening, those who are here, and good morning to those joining from Singapore and from other places. If there are any, I wish you goodness in your space, in your time. So, once again, we are going to look into SNBN, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. But before we do that, we'll take the first few minutes in silent meditation. Every time to come home to our breath, to settle our mind and body. And try to bring the awareness, attention to wherever one may be attending from, to that place, to that time and to the breath in real time. Try to bring full awareness, qualified by attention, alertness, enthusiasm, all combined together in our awareness of the breathing, rather natural breathing, in real time while maintaining our balance between pushing too hard and being completely careless, how to balance between the two extremes in being with the breath. So, we'll be saying the homage to Shakyamuni Buddha for that try to take time in visualizing the merit field. It could be a simple one with Buddha Shakyamuni in the space above oneself. If you will and feel comfortable, then visualize him being flanked by his disciples, masters along the line. After this time, and think of oneself being surrounded by fellow sentient beings without exception. All in human form, yet undergoing their own respective 
sufferings, conditions, predicaments, in accordance with whatever realm they may be, or whatever point of existence they may be in, including that of Bardo, intermediate state, on top of the general common sufferings all sentient beings in samsara undergo, but visualize them for the sake of undertaking the visualizations, follow-up visualizations, think of them as having taken human form within them specifically think of people, animals that you have difficulty getting along connect with all of sentient beings all levels of our connection be that of our very basic commonality be that our shared humanity in a way oh yeah, since we are visualizing all of them in human forms we could say shared humanity sharing our fears, hopes, ideals, as well as our fallacies. Working along those lines, try to develop a strong sense of affinity, of sameness, basic sameness, yet undergoing different conditions, predicaments, sufferings, depending on whatever karma has ripened for each one of them, each one of us. Visualize that we all join together in reciting this homage to Shakyamuni Buddha. If you feel comfortable as the recitation progresses, visualize rays of light emanating from the heart of the Buddha, going to all directions and bringing about relief from the individual sufferings and thus giving rise to intelligence in thinking far, wide, expansive, and also seeing through one's faults, thus being fully inspired and robustly joining in the recitation. Let's take a few minutes in cultivating proper motivation. By going back to his last refuge and bodhicitta prayer that we just said, where he ends with, I will attain 
Buddha would, in order to benefit all sentient beings. Try to remember the connection between Buddhahood that you are seeking, and you are doing that for the benefit of all sentient beings. What is the connection there? Why, to be able to benefit all sentient beings, one needs to attain Buddhahood? Why nothing short of Buddha would will not be enough to be able to fully benefit all sentient beings in the truest sense of the word. So that we think of the qualities of a Buddhahood, a state when one becomes fully awakened. What does that state look like? What does awakening mean? Obviously, awakened, fully awakened state where all good qualities have reached consummate, blossoming, all negativities have been completely eliminated with the subtlest traces of it. So those are the inner qualities of a Buddha, together with his or her physical marks and signs indicative of their state of being completely victorious over all the maras that we can think of. Come, our Dharma practice has come to this level of motivation, where one is seeking, hoping to attain full awakening, anything less than that. And what are the steps? that puts us here, at this level of seeking Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings, which is like the highest type of motivation that one could have for listening to Dharma. What does it take to do a good job in really being serious, sincere, heartfelt in this aspiration. Obviously we are doing away. We are interested in Dharma with our belief and our own corresponding level of conviction in its ability generate 
joy, peace, happiness, and power over our negativities. But joy, peace, happiness, these are all related. So what level of joy, peace, what is aspiring? And what is the step by which we incrementally think of and hope for the next level of higher joy and happiness, so much so that eventually we aspire for nothing short of full awakening. That too, not for one's own sake, but for the sake of all sentient beings. So basically, in aspiring full awakening, one is aspiring full freedom from sufferings, anything that can be limiting to one's ability to serve others. But at the very least, the ability to be able to tame our own mind, so that from that state of tamed, peaceful state of mind, we could think clearly and be of service to others. But then, why Why do we think that such a state of being is possible? And why it is needed? In this regard, Benjen Losun has said, I think in his Tenzin Shakte, which is dialogue between grasping it in our existence and the wisdom understanding emptiness. I think so, but I'm not so sure where he says that. Seeking joy and happiness is what all sentient beings do naturally. But they differ in their level of the understanding of what is possible in terms of joy and happiness, and thus accordingly they aspire for that. In the case of animals, they too seek joy and happiness. But because of their karmic limitations in their bodily capacity, with all other limiting factors in place, they cannot think of, in general, on average, they cannot think of any further possibilities of joy and happiness. 
than the immediate experiences of joy and happiness or experiences of suffering, whatnot. So when we undertake dharma practice as human beings, are we aspiring for just that level of joy and happiness, which is just being free from gross experiences of joy, gross experiences of suffering, misery, and seeking pleasant feelings in their place. If that were so, how long-lasting would this be? From our own experience, we have seen how they come and go, do not last. Moreover, in most of the cases, in samsara, the so-called pleasant feelings themselves are not guaranteed, do not slide us into suffering. So definitely, as human beings inclined, interested in practicing Dharma, one's aim for that should definitely transcend merely seeking immediate pleasures. So that will mean Dharma practice should include little far-ranging prospects of joy and happiness than just this immediate time. So that would be, from a Buddhist worldview, point of view, that will be seeking or making sure that one takes higher rebirths, more fortunate rebirths, among all other possibilities of falling into. So that means living one's life, of course, with those principles mostly the same principles of avoiding harm and adopting helpful benevolent acts, but with the aspiration that they would not only generate joy and happiness here and now, but also lead to more fortunate life next time, and that we keep continuing be reborn, which we have no control over, but nonetheless reborn into fortunate rebirths. So, from a Buddhist perspective, that would be the scope of what we call the practitioners of the least scope. 
then that's only good in a very limited way. Because being reborn in fortunate rebirths is no guarantee that one will not fall into lower realms, that one will not engage in completely senseless, negative, much more graver actions than an animal might do, and thus leading us into more, even deeper miseries and sufferings. So that's that. That's how one then looks for yet another level of joy and happiness, and that will be the joy and happiness of attaining complete freedom from the clutches, from the bondage of afflictions and actions induced by them. But then, if one attains such a state of being for one's own sake, and thus manage to free oneself from the dangers of, not just from the, not just of the lower realms, but even of the samsaric birth, samsaric existence, One is still limited in one's capacity in really being of full benefit to others who have all been one's mothers, parents, brothers, sisters, whatnot. And even in a particular given life, all sentient beings, even we could say past, present and future, are in one way or the other connected our well-being. Thinking along those lines, mere attainment of liberation is not enough, both in the sense of one's own achievement, because there will still be much more room for progress, much more room to improve, but at the same time, more importantly, one will not be of full benefit to sentient beings, one will be lacking in the ability to be of the fullest, truest benefit of all sentient beings. And thus, one then grows further in one's aspiration to attain such a state of being which would transcend arathwood and would include capacities of being of full benefit to all sentient beings without exception. At least from one's own part, one would have achieved all that could be achieved, be that in the sense of realizations, capacities, compassion, love, etc., be then in the sense of being completely free from the clutches of afflictions and anything limiting 
That's how we come to aspire to achieve full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. So whenever we generate this bodhicitta level of motivation, it would be good to come up with some kind of a handy tool or list by which one could review the previous, the preceding steps in arriving to such as aspiration of bodhicitta level, so that the bodhicitta motiv- motivation one generates becomes grounded in all its previous preceding levels of aspirations. So with this in mind, let's once again generate bodhicitta, a state of mind aspiring to achieve full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. And towards the end, we are going to share the Dharma. And may this session together contribute to bringing us closer to achieving, to realizing a full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. Okay, so now we have just one paragraph to push to finish that chapter. So here we are dealing with the topic of mind and its potential. And within that, the subsection called Afflictive Mental States and the Nature of the Mind. And last time we were on page 284, the paragraph, just the last paragraph, just before that, caption of equality of samsara and nirvana. So we are still discussing, of course, the nature of mind, but more particularly on what we might call the very uh, fundamental, the very fundamental uh, 
consciousness, if you will, or very fundamental level of consciousness, which is considered the subtlest mind. Uh, but in terms of the approaches to Dzogchen and the new school translation systems, they approach it a little differently and have a slightly different understanding. Yet at the same time, there are points that are common to them. So we have discussed this at some length in the previous sessions. So we'll carry on from where we left last time. Dzogchen and the new translation systems. By the way, when we, for those who are joining a new that I've heard of from Singapore, for their uh, benefit, when we say Dzogchen and the new translation systems, the term new translation systems has special relevance to the history of Buddhism in Tibet. The new translation system, as opposed to the old translation system, right? So the old translation system, in a way, when we call it all this old translation system or old translation Mm. tradition that's out of the four major or five major depending on how you count it orders of Tibetan Buddhism that old translation school is solely referring to the Nyingma in a way the Tibetan term Nyingma itself means old so the, the oldest school of Buddhism in Tibet and then all the rest fall within what we call the new translation systems or the new translation, I don't know what you call it, tradition, order, yeah, new translation order, or new translation school is better. So they are called new translation and old translation because of a historical occurrence where Buddhism almost got wiped out from Tibet and had to be again painstakingly revived. So that's sometime around 9th century. By the way, during the time of a king, uh, although the historians differ in their opinion, particularly those of the modern time, but the general understanding is that that particular king was very inimical to the Buddhist tradition and deliberately worked in wiping it out, disseminating the Sangha members and whatnot. And that king is supposed to have had black tongue, which people might have figured out when he was dead, I think, or maybe when he was alive speaking, it may have. So the understanding, even the historians believe that since then, Tibetans developed this custom of sticking their tongue, just to show respect as well as proving that, don't fear, I'm not that king incarnate. So the belief in incarnation system and the need of greeting people combined together gave rise to that custom. 
So cultures differ. And within each culture, each one is valid. That's contextual. Everything is contextual. Mademiga is contextual. It's based on that. Okay, so, yeah, so that's what new school, trans new, new translation and old translation. Sometimes people even call new school, old school. Old school of translation, new school of translation. Yeah, right. But why call them new school, old school translation? Well, uh, one could see that this, on top of what was existing mm, before this decline, many new translations were many new sutras and uh, tantras ascribed to the Buddha, together with those written by Indian masters, were introduced. And, yeah, you could say, so many new translations began. During Atisha's time, there wasn't even... When Atisha was in Tibet, and his main disciple, Tom Demba, and others were studying from Atisha. They didn't have... entering into Madhyamika in Tibetan. It was way down, way later. I think during the time of Chekawa, or maybe even not too late. I think it was, I think, Chekawa, Sharawa, Namjo Dentadeva Sharawa, yeah, so that's Sharawa. So little, maybe a generation or two later on. That's Patsap Nimata. He produced this translation of. Mola, Matemika Avatar. So he was very, I'm just making up the story, to fill in gaps. He was, he was very happy <laughs> to have really produced this translation and he presented it to the master. I think Sharawa, maybe, Namshu Deva Sharawa. I may be wrong, but any one of the Kadamba masters. So, yeah, during that period, Atisha came, who was very instrumental in the revival of the Tibetan Buddhism. That's what initiated the new translation school. And the most uh, prevalent, uh, or maybe equally prevalent, but I think most prevalent at that time was the Kadam school, Adam school. And so anyway, when he presented it, uh, he had this master look at it and he would, he might, I can't say for him, but generally people would think that this is the first time it's appearing in Tibetan, who would have any comments on what is right, what is not, what could be tweaked or right, not. But this master looked at it, not necessarily looking at the Sanskrit. He looked at it, he said, oh, you better 
tweak this, this so go and check the Sanskrit original and see if this needs to be tweaked. This could mean this and this this must have this thing in it you have not brought in. So he looked at those points. He was amazed. The master was really exactly pointing what he was missing and also what needs to be tweaked. So it seemed like, although they didn't have the translation in Tibetan, but the teacher taught She, what do you call it? transmission was very strong, particularly Atisha himself was very strong proponent of Madhyamika, particularly or in one of his teachings he would even suggest the preferred masters that you have to go to when you want to look for Madhyamika. He was the one in that particular line, excluding others. So, in, even in the lineage master prayers, uh, which is usually in stanzas, right? In stanzas, you kind of deal with two, three masters at a time, and each one would be, hello, what do you call, uh, even one line. So, in Atisha's case, his uh, his his understanding and his uh, proficiency in Madhyamika is what is uh, brought out. So he was himself a very uh, very strong adherent of the Prasangika Madhyamika and very well uh, trained in it. Uh, yet, in terms of the teaching tools, he didn't have any of these texts in Tibetan. <laughs> and maybe the, the the Tibetan disciples didn't know Sanskrit, I think, because there is no no indication of them having, having been to India or having studied Sanskrit. So, oh yes, there, that's very clear, because he was being translated. When he was teaching, there were two, three translators. Uh, they were trans translating into Tibetan, so without the text. Yeah, likewise, these translations of the major texts only began to appear later on, mostly from the new school, new translation school, period onward. Because in the old translation schools, mostly, uh, of course, it was, uh, I don't know, mostly, I don't know, but a big part of the uh, Dharma treasures uh, include hidden, the revealed hidden treasures. So that's separate from the what we call Xiongqianbo, mainstream, mainstream heavy-duty texts, mainstream classical texts. Those got introduced to mostly from the New Translation period onward. Anyway, so that was my effort to include the new ones, by taking new translation, 
Okay. <laughs> okay, Zogchen and the new translation systems agree that when the coarser levels of the mind are manifest, the subtlest mind is also present. Present. But present in what form is what they differ. <laughs> so, so, so in that sense, uh, no one is without the subtlest mind, the subtlest clearer mind uh, in one form or the other at any given time. Because that has to be always present as the necessary substratum for all the grosser levels of consciousness to, to arise. And compared to that, all the grosser levels of consciousness, which mostly include what we experience. Uh, so compared to that, all the rest are adventitious, even called, could be called, the Tibetan term is adventitious, the uh, Tibetan term is lubarva. Lubarva means it has a connotation of being temporary. Lubarva also means suddenly, suddenly appearing, going, <laughs> suddenly here, but not there, but not always there. So compared to this, compared with this, subtle clear in mind, or from this auction point of view, all the rest are not only gross, but even adventitious, and uh, what do you call? Uh, suddenly coming and suddenly going. <laughs> but then the question, that, okay, as long as there is a being, a person, it is present. So as long as there is a being. So that's what being is special. <laughs> being, being is special. Being a thing and being a being is a whole different thing. So for being a being, <laughs> uh, it takes for them to have what we call the mental aspect. There, no matter how gross we are, so speaking. Nonetheless, uh, all of them, now from this perspective, all of them should necessarily have subtlest clear that might, even in insects. They may or may not be operating on that level, but they have to have that subtlest clear that mind. So in a way, that's mostly, mostly like the very fundamental substratum. Like for physical things, there would be either particles or energy without which they cannot exist, right? They, they will be grounded on it. So likewise for consciousness. In a way, it is, it is sensible to speak of. Once you agree that there is an entity called consciousness, then we could speak. It's quite sensible and reasonable to speak of certain several layer, levels or layers, what not, out of which one particular one happens to be the must present fundamental substratum. But the question is if it is a different entity from the brain or not. So about which we talked about in the previous sessions. 
previous uh, yeah, previous sessions. Yeah, on in regard to that, one thing I needed and I wanted to add is that once you allow that yes, consciousness is not only there but there as a separate entity than the brain, though within an embodied structure, they kind of depend on each other and work together. But the subtler the consciousness becomes, the lesser the dependency is, the lesser the, the correlation is. I was thinking of something. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. So that and and, and that uh, that consciousness could extend, one's own consciousness could extend. A continuum of this, this present consciousness could extend beyond this life. Both in terms of the onset, as well as at the end. Once we allow that, then so many aspects of our life, which remains a mystery, could be kind of approached in a more sensible, logical way. Otherwise, many of them would just remain mystery and not uh, making much sense. Particularly, particularly things like people dying, not living up to particular age necessarily. They die at any varying time of their life, some as babies. So that included, there are so many things that wouldn't make much sense if all we call life, it's just this it begins with our birth, like that. Likewise, there are many other things uh, that we confront in terms of what life is, what it means, purpose, etc. Although from a Buddhist perspective, I usually say, unless you are a fully awakened Buddha or a Bodhisattva, I usually say, I may be wrong, but I usually say there is no necessarily given purpose. One has to build, create purpose. No, it's not that everyone comes with a purpose and one is necessarily pursuing it. If one is a bodhisattva, if one is a fully awakened being, then yes, just about everything, including coming into existence into one form or the other, everything they do, particularly in the case of the Buddha, there would be a purpose. If that is an even smile, there would be a purpose. Many of the scriptures will ask Buddha, oh, we notice you smiling, what's the reason behind it? There will be a reason. They could pursue with with reason, with purpose, just about, for everything, anything they do. But for us, we have to rise up and make our own purpose. Otherwise, 
it is not guaranteed. We could just spend millennium without purpose, not going even an inch further from where we were. Just right. <laughs> so, so the reason why I brought up purpose was I slipped into in putting it into the baggage of what remains as mystery, what not. Almost suggesting that is given purpose for everything. It, so the purpose in this particular context uh, is not something to be seen as given, but rather each one has to. Intentionally, deliberately create. Okay. As long as there is a being, a person, it is present. So the subtlest, clearer mind, or the Rikpa, is present in every sentient being. Every being. So when you say being, that includes even Buddhas. Obviously, Buddhas have also, not only they do not, not only they have this subtlest, clearer mind, they have this as, they only have that and that is fully functional. So they operate fully, completely on that level of consciousness, never having to uh, revert back to any grosser levels. And since they have this fully functional, fully active, fully manifest all the time, say from the new school understanding point of view, the group, the gross consciousnesses would have no choice, no chance of ever arising. Right? So, as long as there is a being, a person, it is present. So that's the reason why I shared with you what I heard from His Holiness, saying that the Vajrayana teachings may vary in different planets. So the one that the Shakyamuni taught is specific to the sentient beings of this world system and it will not apply to other world systems because of different bodily makeups and whatnot. But irrespective of that, the subtlest clear mind is ultimately the consciousness that needs to be not only generated, uh, generated in the sense of made uh, accessible, access it, make it manifest, and employ it on the path. So, what means uh, they may take may differ depending on what kind of bodily form they have, I am in what planet they, have, they are. Otherwise, otherwise, uh, the need of this cultivating the subtle, clear mind, the full functional operation level, if possible, for eternity from that on, if not for any given time, to employ on the path is a must. So it kind of kind of converges with this also. Not only that it is present. Now the question is, 
uh, it comes here. They differ on the issue of whether it is active or dormant while the coarse minds are functioning. So, when we speak of consciousness being dormant and not active or latent, it is as good as almost not being there <laughs> in terms of being in terms of being functional, in terms of being uh, what do you call in terms of being in a working condition. <laughs> so they differ. They differ on the issue of whether the act whether it is active or dormant while the coarse minds are functioning. Functioning means they are operating, so thus they are active. When they are, when the coarse consciousness minds are active, what about the most subtle consciousness? So in the Dzogchen, they, they, they say Rigpa. If we take Rigpa to be the same as mm, referring to the subtle clear mind, of the new translation school, then this area is where they differ prominently. They they differ uh, significantly. In that, uh, in the case of the Dzogchen understanding, even when we have gross consciousness, not just gross consciousness, even when we have afflictions, every mm, type of consciousness is the the Tibetan term we use is Shepa Kain La Rikche Chap means whatever is consciousness, all consciousness are pervaded by so translating it ready, uh, literally it means pervaded by a part of the Rikpa. Or if I use if I be if I be liberal in my translations, every consciousness is permeated by or pervaded by the radiance of Rikpa, which is a little different, right? Anyway, Rikche Chap means it is pervaded by Rikpa, pervaded by a part of the Rikpa, which means if Rikpa were to be the pervader, every or every other consciousness would be pervaded by it, which means all will be touched and connected with Rikpa. And not just that, in a way, we could speak even this being true of in the new school translation for their subtlest uh, clearer mind also, in a way. But they, because every consciousness had to be grounded on the substratum of the subtlest clearer mind. Uh, because when we speak of some, so something called dissolving, which is not the right, best word to, con to convey the function of consciousness, but nonetheless, when they become, when they dissolve in the sense of become dysfunctional and give way to the next subtle consciousness to take over, uh, they do that, and in all of these cases, ultimately, it would have to be grounded on the subtle clear mind. So, in a way, subtle clear mind is present in at all times uh, for all the, all types of consciousness. 
but the difference is whether it is active or not. So we say not active, but at the same time, if it's something that kind of holds all the consciousnesses, in a way, by way of doing that, it is some, some type of being active. But here, when we speak of active and not active, we are speaking of consciousness element or the consciousness uh, entity or the consciousness being able to we call that being being in a mode of uh, of uh, actively interacting with uh, with an object or actively able to observe an object so it's almost like consciousness perked to then be able to see objects or not so when consciousness is not able to do that, we say it has gone dormant when it's able to interact with the object in terms of playing the role of its agent and the, in relation to the object and being able to apprehend or see or whatnot, then that's a case of being active. So that part is the, the point of disagreement. But then I also shared with you that hearing from His Holiness Dalai Lama uh, in the Rikpa, Dzogchen Rikpa, um, understanding the way to access it, where it may be pervading, uh, it may be pervading all consciousnesses, including afflictions or whatnot, uh, but not at any, not at every time we are aware of it necessarily as we are aware of the other consciousness. One may be completely uh, overwhelmed by anger or whatnot and thus never have any sense of Rikpa being there. <laughs> yeah. So it does take some effort. Mm. Of course, not just some effort, great, great effort. And particularly, usually, uh, they seek the guidance, active uh, guidance and supervision of a fully, not fully, uh, of a very experienced teacher. And outwardly, it would seem like all one is doing is emptying thoughts, blanking the mind. But that is considered a little different from usual blanking the mind, which is what Tsongkhapai and others very often object. But his Holiness says that this kind of uh, way of uh, meditating to access the Rigpa under the supervision of an experienced teacher is, a, is an exception, where outwardly or even in terms of the process, it might include the really kind of keeping away from active involvement and letting the consciousness kind of really open. So in the case of gener having generated anger uh, as a means of accessing this, one would be kind of living it uh, in suspension 
living the cons- the anger in suspension, almost like suspension, that it just suspend in the space of the consciousness without uh, without um, following it, chasing it, or resisting it. None of that, and that eventually opens one's awareness to Rigpa. So, so, so th- there are some indications of how two are very similar, and it's almost almost seem like uh, kind of speaking of the same thing, but uh, through different mediums. So I'm I'm kind of coming to saying. There's no difference. <laughs> anyway, but this one, they differ on the issue of whether it is active or dormant while the course minds are functioning. That's a very well accepted, agreed upon difference between the two. Dokshin says the Rigpa is active and manifest at that time. Yeah, it it is active, it is manifest, but it is not necessarily what you call simultaneously accessed. So, in what way is is it active? In what way it is manifest? So, maybe manifest in the sense of what they described the relationship between Rigpa and all the rest of the consciousness that are being pervader and the pervaded. So that way, uh, not that it is dormant. It is active. It's almost like coextensive with the consciousness. Just about any aspect of the consciousness you look at, you could access its nature. By the way, just to digress a little bit, this topic about whether a consciousness is dormant or active is also applicable to grosser consciousnesses, the consciousnesses that we are that we speak in the sutra context. Yeah, I must I must share with Venerable Rinchen last time you brought up that that with these presentations, clearly mind is all of a sudden brought in into into the, into the plate. And now the question is what does the teachings in the sutra about what all of this consciousness do connect or relate with it. How do we bridge the gap between the two and see them as continuum, right? Yeah, I remember very clearly that in my case, it took for me to finish Uma, maybe, academic class, to hear about the Sattva's clear mind. <laughs> So then I very clearly remember kind of going back and forth, questioning what I've learned in the sutra system, kind of connect with it. And it's almost like if it is unconnected, it's like all the efforts you have done and loaded here that doesn't get past you. There is a big, big gap here, no bridge, <laughs> no vehicles travel. Lord there. <laughs> okay. Dzogchen 
Dzogchen says the required activity be manifest at that time, and the new translation schools say, schools say that the settler's clear mind is dormant at that time. Yeah, there are certain natural, uh, what do you call, occasions when they naturally manifest, which is when none of the other grosser consciousness is active. Uh, but then most of them are not employable on the path. Uh, but then there are certain other means by which uh, one could, of course, through persistent training, including going through a whole stage called the generation stage, then eventually proceeding to being able to access it. Uh, and even employ it on the path is possible. Dzogchen teaches a method whereby one can experience Rikpa even while the course consciousness are functioning. So yeah, under supervision of very experienced teachers. Yeah, they usually call that Semmutjopa. I think it is same. Because from what His Holiness was shedding light on in terms of uh, accessing Rikpa and what uh, I see it here. It seems like Semmutjopa, which means introducing the mind. <laughs> you ask for special session instruction in being introduced to the mind. So that should be mind, some mind, not the regular mind. That we all understand. Hmm? Whereby one can experience Rikpa even while the course consciousness functions. The new translation schools rely on dissolving the course consciousnesses and the winds that are their mound by means of special tantric meditation exercises to make manifest the subtlest clearer mind. Both agree on the necessity of accessing this subtlest clearer mind, because when used to realize emptiness, it swiftly eradicates obscurations. Yeah, so... So... For, so for those who are still not so clear on this and maybe still kind of struggling to make, uh, wondering what to make of this vis-a-vis -vis all the other consciousnesses that we are aware of. As I was saying, one way of thinking of this is remembering what uh, His Holiness and Venerable says here that as long as there is a being, a person, it is present. Right? So present in the sense of being the very fundamental substratum or the very fundamental uh, the fundamental level, the fundamental layer of consciousness. Very fundamental 
substratum of the consciousness, of all consciousness. So long as there is a consciousness, irrespective of how gross, how uh, primitive, whatever it may be, it has to be always uh, on the basis of the subtle scalar mind. So thinking of it as the most fundamental basic substratum of consciousness, like we would think of the subtlest particles, the, the most subtle particles for for material things. So if you could think of that, think along, think along that line, then yes, we could kind of situate it in the in the midst of all the consciousnesses. But I'd also remember that this 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 topic about the subtle scalar mind and even Rigpa actually should be pursued uh, should be pursued at its own uh, what do you call uh, preferred level of uh, level of practice. Because this entails being preceded by the Mundo practices, the, the preliminary practices, not just right away start on that, which is what we see many people do. Whatever they don't want to study, they 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 they, they, they put them in the so-called cultural baggage, and like this, and then they go like this, and then like this, this they hold it. Yeah, they do that at their own level and on their own terms. I met a person in in India when I was leading a course, and we had a live discussion about life after and love. And somebody was very seriously saying, "Oh, only when you come to Asia, then there is life. People in Asia have life after and love." Once you come here, they do not have because and he and, and he reasons it by by presenting the Madhyamika uh, understanding because people here do not believe it because they do not believe it. There is no conventional uh, possibility of it's conventionally existing because it's it's all uh, based on mutual agreement. This is. Uh, one area to kind of keep oneself safe from when pursuing Madhya understanding. Because at some points it will seem like, oh, this is what it comes down to, agreement. But then on other areas, it doesn't quite square up well. So I have to really know what does, how much of a role agreement if we solely leave it to agreement, then eventually it will boil down to what I say should be there. <laughs> yeah, so, so I met someone who yeah, was really, really serious. Once you come to Asia and you're in the midst of Asian people believing in life, you would also have a life after. But once, once you take a quick journey, you, you buy your ticket very quickly and then run in the West, then you are freed. And also uh, validly, 
because it's based on my demigod philosophy. <laughs> and that's, that's the reason why I was pushing for everyone to call me Buddha, 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 Buddha many times. <laughs> and I might kind of slowly evolved with, with, with the agreement growing, growing, growing into Buddha. But all I, all I would need to do is just sit and quietly and then... <laughs> then you become instant Buddha. So yeah, that's one area to bring in in one's understanding of Madhyamika. Is it all mutual agreement? That it, not all that, that, that it takes for anything to be there. Yeah, for it to be table, I mean, it, it's almost like we all agree to call it a table, and that's the table, right? And there's no intrinsic tableness in it. Or is there something else? If it is different from someone being Buddha and whatnot, then, then the standards are different. Whereas in the pursuit of understanding of emptiness, what you arrive at is supposed to be applicable to everything at this, at, at the, uh, with everything at the same rate. Okay. Uh, yes. Yes, please. We talk about we use terms like new translation school and old translation school. It sounds very tidy and different, but so many Kagyu teachers that I would think would fall into new translation really teach this access to clear light mind as a matter of course. It seems so. I'm I'm curious about how that division is made. What do you mean? Uh, do you mean that I mean, Kagyu does not believe? Yes, the, the Kagyu teachers, when they sit down and, and uh, well, that's what it sounds like to me anyway, when they're, when they're leading a meditation or teaching meditation, that there is this sense that the, the fundamental nature of your mind is present all the time. You just need to be present, meditate with it. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that from several different Kagyu teachers. Yes. And, uh, you know, it took me forever to figure out yeah. why the heck they would say that. But... Um, anyway, so but I would I would think that they would fall under the new translation school. Oh yeah. So that's where I'm puzzled. I see. Yeah, yeah. All I can think of is mostly Kaju Nyingma masters usually kind of share traditions. They even come up with the term Kanying. Yeah. So very often. Uh, they share transmissions, at, I mean, at least in this given time. Uh, but at the same time, although here it is not brought up, uh, the another, uh, another what you call seemingly equivalent topic is Mahamudra. So they may be presenting Mahamudra, and uh, which is again something that people go after but at the same time not want to do the preliminary reason but <laughs> whereas uh, yeah it has a very similar connotation although Dzogchen is specific mm, in being 
specific, specifically, what do you call it? Uh, in distinct, but nonetheless, very often they are parallels between Dzogchen, Mahamudra. And then some even bring Madhyamika there. Although there, when you bring Madhyamika, you're bringing it only to the level it has, what do you call, uh, association from a, within a sutra range, I think. But unless you are speaking of the subject, Madhyamika, Yujyuma, subject Madhyamika, then one could kind of uh, extend it to meaning such as clearly in mind, observing or having emptiness as its object. So usually they bring up together, but unless you kind of think of Mademika specifically in the subjective aspect, uh, just on its objective aspect, uh, the correlation is very little. Okay, the new school rely on resolving the coarse consciousness and the winds. Yeah, by the way, when we speak of coarse consciousness and winds, this is something associated with the nature of mind. So, this relationship between mind and the so-called wind energy is likened to that of a rider and a mount. So the rider will be dependent on the mount to move to different places. And the mound will be dependent on the rider uh, in terms of what direction it sees or it points to. So particularly we could think of the mound being blind and the rider being lame, right? So both are dependent on each other and dependent on each other for different purposes. For movement, mound gets to decide. For which direction to go, the writer gets to decide. But they have to be always together. So likewise, we speak of the mind, just about every mind, gross, subtle, every mind. Each has its own corresponding pair of mound and the rider. So the mobility part of it, that is ascribed to the so-called mound, the wind. Wind is not the perfect term, but what should we do? In Tibetan, it is called lung. Yeah, it's the same term for wind, yes. but very often they say prana, some kind of energy. It's it's considered physical. The so-called mound is considered physical, so it is very interesting to know the mound is physical, the rider is non-physical. So don't don't think of a mound with a rider with some hat on it because it is non-physical. Cannot put a hat. But still, the mound will be looking for direction from the rider. Where should I go? Which direction? <laughs> so, so, nonetheless, their, their relation is so, what do you call, so, uh, so intertwined. They can never be separated. Uh, so, in, so, so that's why in, in some terms, we call them to be of one entity, separate isolates. Although it's 
in a way, more than isolates. They are distinct. One is physical, one is non-physical. Like that, one has the capacity of moving, and that has the capacity of apprehending. So the mind does not apprehend things, does not see, does not smell, uh, but the consciousness does. So when we speak of these distinctions, it's almost like two things, things can be locked together, but it's also not as that distinct. So we speak of the wind as physical, but not physical in the way we speak, we understand. Today we came across in our class, the term dul. Dul is particle. Dul to tupa. And it's considered compared with what we call subtle particles. Dul, though translated as particles, is considered gross. So gross that Buddha's bodies, being physical, though physical, is not made of gross particles not made of duels. So likewise, this wind is, is, is to be understood as very subtle. So yeah, I was saying, for every consciousness, it has to have. So, so in the sutra level, we do not speak of its corresponding wind as much, All, only sporadically. When we say, get yourself in a proper meditation posture like that, only then we bring wind a little bit, saying it has, it will facilitate the movement because of the spine being upright, what is moving there. If it's just consciousness, it doesn't need any space. It would be just totally non-dependent. But because it is always, what do you call, locked with the, with the wind, so-called wind mount, it is not, it is, it is, it has no choice but to be local. And thus we can speak of it being there, there and there, in somebody, in somebody. Otherwise, if it were to be just consciousness, we cannot say that it's there, not there, it is in you, in not others. So this component, this loom component, determines its locality. That's why in Buddhism, the 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 understanding of so-called cosmic consciousness is not accepted. Like when we die, we merge into a bigger lump, and we are we are in separate bodies. It's almost like water poured in different containers. Once the parts break, they all form together into one body, one body of Water. That's how. That's not what is accepted. So even Buddhas, even Buddhas, they share in their understanding, knowledge, omniscience, all that. So there's no, no, no secrecy among the Buddhas. <laughs> and in a way, among the Buddhas, no secrecy about themselves, no secrecy about all the rest. Also, they know everything. <laughs> But nonetheless, they are not considered to be the same, same person. Yes, speaking of same person or not, 
Yeah, we had this question of whether yesterday is you and today is you are same person or other person. What what do we say? What's your position? Different person? Different person? How could they be different person? There should be one person. Pardon? Yeah, you almost came close to what I was going to say. They are different, but not different person. They are the same person, but not same. They're one person, but not one. They're different, they're different but not different person. Okay, on that note, we will stop here. <laughs> okay, let, let me, for, for the sake of uh, finishing it, uh, read it, read through it. The new translation schools rely on dissolving the coarse consciousnesses and the winds that are their mount. So yes, this wind aspect has to be brought up to think of consciousness. It will really help in understanding what Buddhist understanding consciousness is. So, and also think of one being the lamb rider, the mount being blind, dependent on each other. Never, they cannot ever effort to separate. Otherwise, both of them will lose. <laughs> and their mind, uh, and the winds that are their mount by means of specific tantric meditation exercises to make manifest the subtlest clearer mind. Both agree on the necessity of accessing this subtlest mind because when used to realize emptiness, it swiftly eradicates obscurations. So again, the question is how, why? Hmm? Yeah, it's very uh, yeah important. Okay. So we are going to be the same person as tomorrow's we, okay? So take, take tomorrow's ourselves into consideration. <laughs> okay. <laughs>